Chapter number 50 of Oliver Twist by Charles Dickens. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Arthur Piantidosi. Oliver Twist by Charles Dickens. Chapter 50. Chapter 50. The pursuit and escape. Near to that part of the Thames on which the church at Rotherhith abuts, where the buildings on the banks are dirtiest and the vessels on the rivers the blackest with the dust of colliers and the smoke of close-built, low-roofed houses, there is the filthiest, the strangest, the most extraordinary of the many localities that are hidden in London, wholly unknown, even by name, to the great mass of its inhabitants. To reach this place, the visitor has to penetrate through a maze of close, narrow, and muddy streets, thronged by the roughest and poorest of motorside people, and devoted to the traffic they may be, as opposed to occasion. The cheapest and least delicate provisions are heaped in the shops, the coarsest and commonest articles are wearing apparel dangle at the salesman's door, and stream from the house parapet and windows, jostling with unemployed labourers of the lowest class, Bellless teavers, curl whippers, brazen women, ragged children, and the earth and refuse of the river. He makes his way with difficulty along, assailed by offensive sights and smells from the narrow alleys which branch off on the right to left, and deafened by the clash of ponderous wagons that bear great piles of merchandise from the stacks of warehouses that rise from every corner. Arriving at length in streets remoter and less frequented than those through which he has passed, he walks but many tottering fronts projecting over the pavement, dismantled walls that seem totter as he passes, chimneys half crushed, half hesitating to fall, windows guarded by rusty iron bars that time and dirt have almost eaten away every imaginable sight of desolation and neglect. In such a neighbourhood, beyond Dorkhead in the borough of Southwark, stands Jacob's Island, Surrounded by a muddy ditch, six or eight feet deep and fifteen or twenty wide when the tide is in, once called Mill Pond, but known in the days of this story as Folly Ditch. It is a creek or inlet from the Thames, and could always be filled with high water by opening the sluices at the lead mills from which it took its old name. At such times, a stranger looking from one of the oaten bridges thrown across it at Mill Lane, will see the inhabitants of the houses on either side lowering from the back doors and windows, buckets and pails, domestic utensils of all kinds in which to haul the water up. When his eye is turned from these operations and houses themselves, his utmost astonishment will be excited by the scene before him. Crazy wooden galleries common to the backs of half a dozen houses, with holes from which to look upon the slime beneath, windows broken and parched with tables thrust out, on which to dry their linen it is never there, rooms so small, so filthy, so confined, that the air would seem too tainted even for the dirt and squalor which they shelter, woman chambers thrusting themselves out above the mud, and threatening to fall into it, as some have done, dirt besmeared walls and discaring foundations, every repulsive lineament of poverty, every loathsome indication of filth, rot, and garbage. All these ornament the banks of Folly Ditch. In Jacob's Island, the warehouses are roofless and empty. The walls are crumbling down. The windows are windows no more. The doors are falling into the streets. The chimneys are blackened. 
but they yield no smoke. Thirty or forty years ago, before losses and chancery suits came upon it, it was a thriving place, but now it is a desolate island indeed. The houses have no owners, they are broken open and entered upon by those who have the courage, and there they live, and there they die. They must have powerful motives or secret residence, or be reduced to a destitute condition indeed, who seek refuge in Jacob's island. In an upper room of one of these houses, a detached house of fair size, ruinous in other respects, but strongly defended at door and window, of which house the back commanded the ditch in a manner already described, there were assembled three men, who were regarding each other every now and then with looks expressive of perplexity and expectation, sat for some time in profound and gloomy silence. One of these was Toby Crackett, another Mr. Chitling, and a third a robber of thirty years, whom his nose had been almost beaten in, in some old scuffle, and whose face bore a fearful scar, which might probably be traced to the same occasion. This man was a returned transport, and his name was Cags. "'I wish,' said Toby, turning to Mr. Chitling, "'that you pick out some more crib when the two old go too warm.' And he not come here, my fool fella. What in you, blunderhead? said Cags. Well, I thought you'd be a little more glad to see me than this, replied Mr. Chitling, with a melancholy air. Well, look here, young gentleman, said Toby. One more keep himself so very exclusive as I had done. And boy, that means a snug over his head with nobody a pride and smelling about it. It's better than a sorry thing than the order of visit from all young gentlemen. How a respectable and pleasant person it may be to play calls without conveniency. Because circumstances as you are, especially one exclusive old man his gold friend stopping with him, as it was sooner than was expected from foreign parts, and it's too modest to warn him his pregnancy to indulge his order's return. That is Mr. Caggs. There was a short silence, after which Toby Crackett, seeming to abandon as hopeless any further effort to maintain his usual devil-may-care swagger, turned to Chitling and said, Who was begging talk then? Just at dinner time. Two o'clock this afternoon. Surely no made our lucky up the Warsaw chimney and drove to go in the empty war but Oh, don't worse, but his legs were so precious long they stuck out and taught him who they took him to. I'll bet, poor bet, she went to see the boy to speak to who it was, replied Chitling, his countenance falling more and more. I went all mad, screaming and raving and beating your head against the balls, so I pulled straight waistcoat and took it to the hospital. And there she is. What's come her young base? demanded Cags. He young about not come over here, but don't be me here soon, replied Chitling. And nowhere else to go to now, for people who cripples are all in custody, and the moral that can. I went up there and see it my own eyes, if it were traps. That is a smosh, observed Toby, biting his lips. As more than one go with this. The sessions are wrong, said Cags. 
they are getting wasted right about the turns King's evidence as a cause it will from what we said already a improved faking is accessory before the fact again for what you want before we hear you swinging in six days from west by god you sure hear the people groan said Chidley. the officers thought like devils away torn him away he was down once, and they made a ring round him, and fought their way along. You sure see now he looked about him, all moody and bleeding, and clung to them as if they were his friends. Oh, you'd see him now, not maybe to stand upright with a pressing on the mob, and drug him along amongst them. I can see people jump not one behind the other, and showing him where teeth and making at him. I'd seen the blood pointed air and beer near the cries with which a woman walked himself with his centre of a crowded street corner and swore to tear his all out. The horror-stricken weakness of this scene pressed his hands upon his ears, and with his eyes closed I got up and paced violently to and fro, like one distracted. While he was thus engaged, and the two men sat by in silence with their eyes fixed upon the floor, a pattering noise was used upon the stairs, and Sykes's door bounded into the room. <laughs> they ran to the window downstairs and into the street. The dog jumped in at an open window. He made no attempt to fool them, nor is his master to be seen. Who's the meaning of all this? said Toby when they would return. I can't be coming here. I, I hope not. He was coming here, he'd come with a dog said Cags, stooping down to examine the animal, who lay panting on the floor. Here, yeah, give us some warm for him. He's ruined himself faint. He's drunk it all up, every drop, said Chitling, after watching the dog some time in silence. Cover him with mold, lame, or blind, he will come a long way. Where can he have come from? exclaimed Toby. It's been in the old Kensal Court, and far and few strangers come on here, where he'd been so many a time and all been. But where can he come from first, and how comes he here without you? I, another than called the murderer by his own name, I cure made him away himself. What do you think? said Chitling. Shirley shook his head. If he out, said Cags. And do we want us to lead us away where he did it? No lying's go out of the country and left the door behind. He must give him a slip somehow, or it wouldn't be so easy. This solution, appearing the most probable one, was adopted as the right. The dog, creeping under a chair, coiled itself up to sleep without any more notice from anybody. It being now dark, the shutter was closed, and a lantern lighted and placed upon the table. The terrible events of the last two days made a deep impression on all three. Increased by the danger and uncertainty of their own position, they drew their chairs closer together, starting at every sound. They spoke little, and that in whispers, and were as silent and awe-stricken as if the remains of the murdered woman lay in the next room. They had sat thus some time, and suddenly was heard a hurried knocking at the door below. "'Young bites!' said Cags, looking angrily around, to check the fear he felt himself. The knocking came again. No, it wasn't he. He never knocked like that. Crackett went to the window, and shaking all over, drew in his head. 
there was no need to tell them who it was his pale face was enough the dog too was on the alert in an instant and ran whining to the door what's let him in he said taking up the candle i'm not any help for it asked the other man in a hoarse voice none it must come in don't leave us on the dark said Keggs, taking out a candle from the chimney-piece and lighting it which out a trembling hand and a knocking was twice repeated before he had finished crackett went down to the door and returned followed by a man with the lower part of his face buried in a handkerchief and another tied over his head under his hat he drew them slowly off blanched face sunken eyes hollow cheeks beard of three days growth wasted flesh short thick breath was the very ghost of sykes he laid his hand upon a chair which stood in the middle of the room but shuddering as he was about to drop into it and seemingly glance over his shoulder dragged it back across the wall as close as it was to go and ground it against it and sat down not a word had been exchanged he looked from one to another in silence even i were furtively raised and met his it was instantly averted when his hollow voice broke silence they all three started they never seemed to have heard its tone before how came that dog here he asked alone three hours ago an old paper says fagin's talk is it true or a lie true they were silent again damn you all said sykes passing his hand across his forehead are you knowing inside of me there was an uneasy movement about among them but nobody spoke you look in this house said sykes turning his face to cricket you mean to sell me or let me lie in you this house is over you make sure you think it's safe returned the person dressed after some hesitation sykes carried his eyes slowly up the wall behind him rather trying to turn his head than actually doing it and said eyes the boy is it buried they shook their heads why isn't it he retorted with the same glance behind him why keep such holy things about the ground for who's that knocking Crackett intimated by motion of his hands he left the room that there was nothing to fear and directly came back with charlie bates behind him sykes at opposite the door said the moment the boy entered the room he encountered his figure toby said the boy falling back as sykes turned his eyes towards him will you tell me this downstairs there had been something so tremendous in the shrinking off of the three that the wretched man was willing to propitiate even this lad accordingly he nodded and made as though he would shake hands with him let me go into some other room said the boy retreating his heel further surely said sykes stepping forward don't you don't you know me don't come near me answered the boy still retreating and looking with horror in his eyes upon the murderer's face you more sir 
The man stopped halfway, and they looked at each other, at Sykes' eyes sunk gradually to the ground. "'Wait is you three? cried the boy, shaking his clenched fist and becoming more and more excited as he spoke. "'Wait is you three? I'm not afraid of him, and they come here after him, I'll give him up. I will. I'll tell you how it was. He might kill me for all he likes, if he dares, or I'm here, I'll give him up. I'll give him up if he's asked for born alive. Murder! Help! If there's a plug of a man among you three, you help me. Murder! Help! Down with him! Pouring out these cries and accompanying him with vile gestural education, the boy actually threw himself single-handedly upon the strong man and in the intensity of his energy and the suddenness of his surprise brought him heavily to the ground as three spectators seemed quite stupefied they offered no interference and the boy and man rolled on the ground together the former heedless of the blow that showered upon him shrinching his hands tighter and tighter in the garments about the murderer's breast but never ceasing to call for help with all his might the contest, however, was too unequal to last long. Sykes set him down, and his knee was on his throat, and Crackett pulled him back with a look of alarm and pointed to the window. There were lights gleaming below, voices in loud and earnest conversation, the tramp of hurried footsteps. Illness they seemed in number, closing the nearest wooden bridge. One man on horseback seemed to be among the crowd, for there was a noise of hoofs rattling on the uneven pavement. A gleam of lights increased. The footsteps came more thickly and noisily on. Then came a loud knocking at the door. And then a hoarse murmur from such a multitude of angry voices as would make the boldest quail. Help! shrieked the boy in a voice that rent the air. He's here! Break down the door! In the king's name! cried the voices without. And the hoarse cry arose again, but louder. Right down the door, shrieked the boy. I tell you, they'll never open it. Roll straight to room where the lawyers. Break down the door. Strokes, thick and heavy, rattled upon the door and lower window shutters as he ceased to speak. A loud huzzah burst from the crowd, giving a listener for the first time some adequate idea of its immense extent. Open the door, some place where I lawyers screeching, hell, babe cried Sykes fiercely, running to and fro and dragging the boy now, as easily as if he were an empty sack. At door, quick! He flung him in and bolted it and turned the key. As it downstairs, door fast! Double or enchained! replied Frackett, who, with the other two men, still remained quite helpless and bewildered. A pose always strong! Law is she on! And the windows, too! Yes, a window! Die, you! cried the desperate ruffian, throwing up the sash and menacing the crowd. Do your worst! Or see you yet! Of all the terrific yells that ever fell on mortal ears, none could exceed the cry of the infuriated throng. Some shouted to those who were nearest to set the house on fire. Others roared to the officers to shoot him dead. Among them all, none showed such fury as a man on horseback who, throwing himself out of the saddle and bursting through the crowd as if he were parting water, cried beneath the window in a voice that rose above all others, Twenty guineas to the man who brings a ladder! The nearest voices took up the cry, and hundreds echoed it. Some called for ladders, some for sledgehammers, 
Some ran with torches to and fro as if to seek them, and still came back and roared again. Some spent their breath in impotent curses and execrations. Some pressed forward with the ecstasy of madmen, and thus impeded the progress of those below. Some among the boldest attempted to climb up by the water-spouting crevices in the wall, and all waved to and fro in the darkness beneath, like a field of corn moved by an angry wind, and joined from time to time in one round furious roar. Enjoyed! cried the murderer, as he staggered back into the room, and shook the faces out. A toy was in when ours all came up. Give me a rope, a long rope. They're away from I'm out dropping in the full aviation clear all that way. Give me a rope or I'll she do three more murders and kill more itself. The panic stricken maiden pointed to where such articles were kept. The murderer, hastily selecting the longest and strongest cord, hurried up to the roast top. All the windows in the rear of the house had been long ago been bricked up, except one small trap in the room where the boy was locked, and that was too small even for the passage of his body. But from this aperture he had never ceased to call on those without to guard the back, and thus when the murderer emerged at last on the house top by the door on the roof, a loud shout proclaimed the fact to those in front, who immediately began to pour round, pressing upon each other in an unbroken stream. He planted a board, which had been carried up with him for the purpose, so firmly against the door that it must be a matter of great difficulty to open it from the inside, and creeping over the tiles, looked over the lower parapet. The water was out, and the ditch a bed of mud. The crowd had been hushed out during these few moments, watching his motions and doubtful his purpose. But the instant they perceived it and knew it was defeated, they raised a cry of triumphant execration to which their, all their previous shouting had been whispers. Again and again it rose. Those who were at too great a distance to know its meaning took up at the sound. It echoed and re-echoed. It seemed as though the whole city had pulled its population out to curse him. On pressed the people from the front. On, on, on! in a strong, struggling current of angry faces, with here and there a glaring torch to lighten them up, and show them on all their wrath and passion. The houses on the opposite side of the ditch had just been entered by the mob. Sashes were thrown up, or torn bodily out. There were tears and tears of faces in every window, cluster upon cluster of people clinging at every housetop. Each little bridge, and there were three in sight, bent beneath the weight of the crowd upon it, Still the current poured on to find some nook or hole from which to vent their shouts, and only for an instant see the wretch. I have him now, cried a man on the nearest bridge. Roar! The crowd lighted with uncovered heads, and again the shouts uprose. I will give fifty pounds, cried an old gentleman from the same quarter. The man who takes him alive, I will remain here till he come to ask me for it. There was another roar. At this moment the word was passed among the crowd that the doors forced at last, and that he who had first called for the ladder had mounted into the room. The stream abruptly turned as this intelligence ran from mouth to mouth, and the people at the windows, seeing those upon the bridges falling back, quitted their stations and, running into the street, joined the concourse that now thronged pell-mell to the spot they had left, each man crushing and striving with his neighbour, and all panting with impatience to get near the door, and look upon the criminal as the officers brought him out. The cries and shrieks of those who were pressed almost to suffocation, or trampled down and trodden under foot in the confusion, were dreadful. 
narrow ways were completely blocked up and at this time between this rush of some to regain the space in front of the house and the unavailing struggles of others to extricate themselves from the mass the immediate attention was distracted from the murderer although the universal eagerness for his capture was impossible increased the man had shrunk down thoroughly quelled by the ferocity of the crowd and the impossibility of escape but seeing the sudden change with no less rapidity than it occurred he sprang upon his feet to make one last effort for his life by dropping into the ditch and at the risk being stiff they filled endeavouring to creep away in the darkness and confusion roused into new strength and energy and simulated by the noise within the house which announced that the entrance had really been effected he set his foot against the stack of chimneys fastened one end of the rope firmly and firmly round it and with the other made a strong running noose by the aid of his hands and teeth almost in a second he could let himself down by the cord within a distance of the ground than his own height and his knife ready in his hand to cut it then and drop in the very instant when he brought the loop over his head previous to slipping it between his armpits and when the old gentleman before mentioned would clung so tight to the railing of the bridge as to resist the force of the crowd and retain his position Ursy warned those about him that the man was about to lower himself down. At the very instant, the murderer, looking behind him on the roof, threw his arms around his head and uttered a yell of terror. The oars again! He cried in an earthly screech. Staggering as if stuffed by lightning, he lost his balance and tumbled over the parapet. The noose was on his neck. He ran up with his weight tight as a bowstring and switches as an arrow it speeds he fell for five and thirty feet there was a sudden jerk a terrific convulsion of the limbs and there he hung with the open knife clenched in his stiffening hand the old chimney quivered with a shock but stood it bravely the murderer swung lifeless against the wall and the boy thrusting aside the dangling body with its absurdity's view called to the people to come and take him out for god's sake a door which had lay concealed till now ran backwards and forwards on the parapet with a dismal howl <coughs> and collecting himself for a spring jumped for the dead man's shoulders missing his aim he fell into the ditch turned completely over as he went and striking his head against a stone dashed out his brains End of chapter fifty of Oliver Twist.